had enough of me last week, but you get me again. Um, <clears throat> so, by the grace of God, by the ordinance of God, by the preordained purposes of God, uh, I was actually working on a sermon yesterday for college. And so, this is... <laughs> um, this is something that I get to share with you that you wouldn't have otherwise got to have heard um, if Steve hadn't um, come down sick. So this morning we're going to be looking at work. And to start us off, I, wanted, I want you to put yourself uh, in your shoes or in your bed tomorrow morning. It's Monday morning. I'm sure we all know the feeling of Monday mornings. And there's often this conversation that goes on in our head. You know, it's Monday again. What happened to the weekend? Do I have to get up now? Can I squeeze in a few more minutes if I hit the snooze button? Um, we, we have this feeling, and I'm sure if any of us who have had jobs, uh, who are in jobs, we've had this experience. Even if we, if we don't have jobs, if we um, just got the tasks ahead of us, sometimes uh, it can feel... Like there's a big, a big mountain in the road. There's something about uh, about work that makes us dread the day ahead. It's a mountain that we have to climb day after day. And the thing about Mondays is that you can see the other four mountains behind the mountain that you have to climb on Monday. And it's hard. It's tiring. It's it's stressful. Yet often, when we get to the peak of the mountain, we look back and we go, well, actually. That wasn't so bad, you know. This was actually pretty good. I did a hard day's work. I achieved things. Actually, I like my job. We find fulfillment and accomplishment uh, in in fulfilling our tasks. We build things. We see the outcome of the labour of our hands. There's something something great about being able to enjoy the fruit of our labour, to enjoy the things that we worked so hard for. You know, that that time when you get to enjoy the the house that you have worked and scraped and saved and waited for for so long. There's there's enjoyment in that. Or or you know, the your first car when you when you work to that part time job for for months and months and months and you, you're able to save up and get your first car and you just drove that car around all the time. Any chance you got, go down to the shops, uh, um, go and pick up your mates, you, you wanted to be the taxi driver for everyone. There's something about being able to enjoy that thing that we have worked for. And, and everybody knows that the best beer you ever have is one that is at the end of a hard day's work when you sit down and you kick your boots off. But unless you've done the hard work, you don't get the enjoyment out of it. It feels, feels wasted. See, work is one of these things that it's so easy to have a work, a, a love-hate relationship with. It's hard, but it helps. It's stressful, but it gives us a chance to shine and use our gifts. Sometimes it feels futile, but then the next day it feels fulfilling. But why is work like this? And we're going we're gonna to think through some of this today. We're going to look at seven things that help us get our head around work. We're talking about the broader work of you too. Don't just think nine to five employment. Think about the broader scope of labor, of the things that we do to live and thrive and survive. It can include everything from preparing meals to digging ditches, typing agendas to changing nappies, counting stock to preaching sermons. These things are things that we labour and work in. We serve, we make, we prepare, we clean, whatever the case may be. 
We're going to answer questions like, why is work like this? Why bother working if we don't have to? And how does my faith affect my approach to work? But don't worry, the seven points that we're going to cover this morning, we're going to do them in, in shorter sections, so we're not going to be here all morning. But it's, it's something that affects us all. And so I'm hoping that we can, we can all um, see how this uh, affects us. I'm going to take a tour of the mountains that is work in our life. And hopefully by the end, you will just be so pumped that on your way home from church, you will be thinking, oh, I wish it was Monday so I could get stuck back into work again. I want us to leave with one clear message. We should work like God works. We should work like God works. So firstly, number one, we're going to look at the work of God. Uh, To help our thinking about work, let's think about God. God is the place that we need to go to to figure out our humanity because after all, everything that is good in, in human, in humanity is something that comes out of God. It flows from God. And we need to go to him to see how we ought to live because the way we live is in both reflecting his image and obeying his commands. So when we open our Bibles, the first thing we see is that God is a working God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God was a creator from the very first verse. From the start, God is an artist. From the start, God is a manufacturer. He is making things that are new and never seen before. He is making things that are beautiful. He's making things that are good and he's creating order out of chaos. He brings order out of the primeval disorder and he presides over uh, creation with care and authority and he'll even delegate some of his authority uh, like a CEO or manager who delegates authority so that they can collectively manage a productive company. So from the first verse of scripture, we see that God works, he makes, he orders. And in fact, this idea of God as a worker as just never stops. As we move throughout scripture, we see God gets given different, uh, different descriptions of like job descriptions. Um, he's described with different occupations. We see that God is a creator. We see that God is a gardener. He plants a garden. We see that God is a shepherd. We think about him as the shepherd of his people, as a potter who molds and makes uh, vessels, as a physician, somebody who heals people, as a teacher, as a vine dresser, and even as a metal worker. And I'm sure you can see how God describes him, shows himself in these ways as, as something that we can identify with, as something that we can easily imagine um, somebody doing these jobs, like trimming vines or melting metal in a furnace. But God uses these job titles to describe the way he interacts with us. He gives us a picture of what God is like and the way he operates. He works and he has tasks to do and he sets out to complete them. I mean, I know that God is not like us in so many ways. He is God and we are not. But in the way that we are workers and he is a worker, we reflect his image very clearly. Even though we are mere mortal humans, we have within us a desire to work and make and create and order. We have a desire to complete tasks, to reach goals, to perfect our creations. Even 
at work, I was thinking, even at, even at work, we, we have this desire to order our desk so that everything is in order and we can find things and things have their place. Whatever our domain, we have a need to, um, to order and to perfect and to reach goals. God works even in the face of trials. He works even though there is opposition. Even though God's own creation has rebelled against him, God works with it and within it to perfect it. And he will show that in his ultimate work in Christ. But we'll get to that later. For now, I want us to remember, work like God works. Reflect his character and embrace your work as you as you reflect him. But number two, we see that work is good and bad. When God first made uh, humans in the beginning, he gave them a job. They had work to do. Even in the beautiful Garden of Eden, they had tasks to do. They had labor. Um, if you just look at Genesis chapter 2, I've just put it up there, in verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. So even before mankind had ever considered rebelling against God, he had allocated them a job to do. Even before any job interviews or skills testing, God gave Adam a job to work and keep the garden. Some would say his job even included protecting the garden from what would be his downfall, the serpent. But God had worked in creation. He had planted a garden and now he assigned care and upkeep of the garden to Adam. And on the the whole, Adam had a pretty good gig. He got to hang out with God, he got to enjoy the garden, he got to eat the fruit of the crops. But like any job, he couldn't just do whatever he wanted. He had to abide by the rules. He had to play by the rules. And unfortunately, he couldn't hack it. He had to go and throw it all away. Adam and Eve failed to play by the rules, so God fired them. He sent them packing. And then God said, this isn't just about working in the garden. Your whole life and the lives of your offspring will be messed up because of your choices here. God cursed them. In fact, he made this specific curse towards Adam in Genesis chapter 3. To Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and you've eaten the tree of which I've commanded you, you shall not eat. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face. You shall eat bread until you return to the ground, for out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. This this good and wonderful opportunity to work with God had been messed up. God says, now it's going to be hard to grow food. It's going to be painful toil. And not only that, it's going to be as if the earth itself is is against you in bringing forth thorns and thistles. You're going to toil long and hard, working the ground until eventually you're buried in the ground and you decompose. You're going to work your whole life and you're going to have nothing to show for it. What was good has been twisted. What was a prime position is now ruined. And the curse is symbolic of the life we now live as well. Even though for the most part we don't, uh, most of us don't have occupations where we are actually working the soil, we still must work and toil and labor by sweat and tears to make ends meet. 
whether it be long hours at the office or backbreaking work or high stress of big responsibilities, we must battle the brokenness of this world for our bread. Yet even though work is hard, it's still good. Even though it's cursed, it's still a way that we reflect God. We reflect his image when we work, even when we work through the opposing forces. And the sad thing is, though, (laughs) that our work doesn't always give us the return that we desire. Sometimes we plant the field, but the rain doesn't come. Sometimes you work hard for your employer, but he shortchanges you and doesn't pay you overtime. Sometimes you work really hard to help somebody, and then they just go and take you to court and sue you for all you have. Usually, if you put in the hard yards, you get the reward. But sometimes, because of a broken creation and the limits of death, we don't get to reap what we've sown. Work is good and bad. And the writer of Ecclesiastes was up to speed with this, as we were just reading before. Interestingly, he said in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, he said, For all his, he's talking about men, uh, people, for all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This is also vanity. There is nothing better than for a person, sorry, for a person than he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from it, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? So even though we have setbacks and and we have toil, there's nothing better for a person than they should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil, even though it seems vain. And this is a gift from God. So I want you to embrace your work. Take hold of your work knowing that it will be hard, but it's good. It's messed up in a messed up world, and usually we work alongside messed up sinful people. But in the midst of work, we reflect God's character. We battle the brokenness of this world. We do what is good, and we are used by God. We are his tools, and he applies his tools to the world to make it turn and to make us his representatives in every dark place. I found this quote from Ulrich Zwingli, one of the Swiss reformer. He said, You are God's tool. He wills to wear you out by use, not by idleness. O happy man whom he calls to his work. So I want you to work like God works, knowing that for now it's with Opposition, but it's still a good and noble thing. Number three, we see that work is sacred and secular. Now, we intrinsically know that there is something that divides the spiritual from the fleshly, the the ordinary from the extraordinary. There's the sacred, uh, sorry, the, uh, the heavenly and the earthly. And sometimes it feels like, as Christians, we have to choose between the two. There's the stuff I do for God, and then there's the stuff I do to earn a crust. And sometimes this extends to the way that we think about our occupations. Sometimes we think um, some occupations are more holy than others. And, and this can be reflected in churches sometimes when there's this, there's this, you know, sometimes deliberate, sometimes not deliberate division between the clergy and the laity, the people who work for God full time and the people who manage best as they can. But this isn't a biblical way to think about our work. 
Sure, there are vocations that are sometimes directly spiritually related, but that doesn't make them more or less important than our other vocations. God sets some people aside to serve him in a certain special way, but that doesn't mean that everybody else is less spiritual or shortchanging by God by not running off to Bible college to become a full-time missionary. The spiritual does not trump earthly activities. They go together. The janitor is just as well off as the pastor as long as they are both using their gifts and abilities to serve God. Think about the way that God used Israel. He did set aside one clan to be the the, the Levites, to be the, the sacred and holy workers, but he left 11 other tribes to be the ordinary workers and laborers in the promised land. And God used people of different gifts to serve him. Remember when Solomon was setting up the temple, he by, by God's command, he used all kinds of different artisans uh, and, and laborers. He used um, metal workers to adorn the temple. There were masons and there was carpenters. You know, and then once they got the whole thing up and running, people had different roles in the running of the temple. There were those who were musicians and singers. There was guards and there were scribes. And I assumed that there had to be cleaners with all the blood and guts that was going on with the... Uh, with the with the sacrifices at the altar. And I'm sure that the, even at the altar, there were some priests that were better skilled at doing all of the sacrifices than others. And this is how we work even now. We use our gifts to serve God. Whether they appear to be more spiritual or more earthly, we use our gifts to work well and earn a living. And as the opportunity arises... Sometimes we get to use our gifts expressly for the purpose of building up God's church. But we use our gifts as God has gifted us. You know, if God has, has made us really good at making money, then go and make money and use it to, to fund God's church around the world. If you're good at, at being a doctor, heal people as a reflection of God who is our healer. If you're a mother, mother your children well, training them up in the way of the Lord. If you're a builder, build to the glory of God, mimicking the way he builds his church. And as the opportunity arises, use your gifts to help others. Our occupation should accompany the good news we bring. Our work shouldn't be sacred or secular. It should be sacred and secular. Our work should be a test to the way that we follow Christ. And our work should be for the building up of God's kingdom. We don't need to create a divide of this is for God and this is ordinary. Everything should be for God and we need to figure out a way to use our skills and opportunities to be faithful and to use our skills to leverage them for God's kingdom. So I want to ask you, how are you going to blur the sacred and secular divide this week? How will you work in a heavenly way while you work on earth? For Paul the Apostle, he made tents so that he could support himself to minister to the churches. He could have taken uh, like a stipend from the churches, but he said, I wanted to work so that I was no burden on you. You had no reason to, um, to doubt the sincerity of my message. And he used his tent-making skills so that he could travel and work. 
He used his secular work to power his sacred work. And I want to know, what will it look like for you? It might look like taking a teaching job in Tibet so you can take the gospel into a closed country. It might look like becoming a foster parent so that you can show kids the the love of Christ. It might look like taking a bricklaying job so you can just be there to evangelize other tradies. It might look like taking a part-time job so that you have more time to serve others. See, God blurs the sacred and secular way in which he deals with us. Even in the way that he works with us now, he upholds the universe by his power. He gives us everything that we need in, in physical and tangible things, but he also provides for our spiritual needs of salvation and sanctification. And it's not as though those two are mutually exclusive. They come together. So work like God works and blur the sacred and secular. Number four, work is reward and rewarding. So it might sound a little bit funny to think of work as a reward, but when God was taking the Israelites into the promised land, he said that work was a gift to them. Um, even the ability to an opportunity to work comes from God. Uh, in, in Deuteronomy chapter chapter 8, he said to them when he's warning the Israelites, he says, Beware lest you say in your heart, My power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is to this day. So even the opportunity to work came from God. He gives you the power to get wealth. Every, I think it's important for us to think about this. Sometimes we think after all our hard work and what we've, what we've gone out and what we've earned, we can start to think that it was all from us. But even the ability to go out and earn what we have earned comes from God. Yet even as God gives us power to earn a reward, he also blesses the labors of our hands. And the general rule is that those who work will receive their due reward. If you sow, you will reap. If you work hard for your employer, he will pay you and treat you well. If you train your kids well, they will grow up into God-fearing adults. Now, as we looked at before, none of these things are guaranteed, but the general rule is that if you put in the hard yakka, you will get the result. Paul the Apostle at one time had to reprimand some of the Thessalonians because they had forgotten this. They'd forgotten that they were supposed to work. They thought that they could just mooch off other rich Christians until Jesus comes back. But Paul said to them in Thessalonians, Second Thessalonians, For even when we were with you, we would give you this command, If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such a person we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. Sometimes we think about the provision of God and we can use it as an excuse to be lazy. We say, well, God will provide. God, God gifts, God looks after me. And we can use it as an excuse to to be lazy. We say, oh, Jesus said, the birds don't worry about what they'll eat. God provides. But God, but Jesus didn't say that the birds don't work. He said that the birds don't worry. 
Someone said that God will feed every little bird, but he does not put the food in its mouth. If you observe birds for any stretch of time, you discover that if they're not flying around or sitting around chirping, they're on the ground or in the bushes searching out their next meal. They're busy from daylight to dark, scratching for it. So God provides for even the birds, but even the birds have to work for what he gives. And this is the way God works for us too. He will give us what we need, but we need to go out and seek it and find it and earn it. We can't sit idly by and hope that God will will drop everything in our lap. Sure, if God leads you into the desert, he might provide manna for you, but that is not the norm. The norm is that we need to work and toil for our daily bread, even while we pray, God, give us this day our daily bread. So let's go to work. Let's earn the reward for our labor. Let's thank God for the work that we have to do. We need to work like God works, not being idle, not mooching off friends or family or even off the government. Now, there's time and a place for us to get help and from our friends and family and government, but we shouldn't use it as an excuse to be lazy. If we don't work, we don't eat. We need to earn the reward. Fifthly, number five, we see that work is stewardship and saving. Because another aspect of the of work is stewardship and saving. Uh, we, we mentioned earlier that part of Adam and Eve's job was care and oversight of the garden. They were supposed to look after what was entrusted them. And we need to do the same. God has entrusted you with many things, from possessions to wealth to training and skills, and he expects us to use what he has given us to be fruitful. Now, I'm sure you all remember the parable of the talents where there was a a rich man, I believe, who gave three of his servants differing levels of, of, uh, of money. He gave one a heap of money, one a pretty big sum of money, and one a small sum of money. And when he went away, he, he, he expected them to use what he had given them to invest it, to grow it, to build it. And the one who had heaps of money made bucket loads of money. And the one who had a decent amount of money he multiplied his money. But the bloke who had very little, he kind of buried it and just left it and waited for his master to come back. And now when the master came back, he actually rewarded the one with the most, the most, and the rewarded the one with uh, the, the middle amount, a middle bit, and the one that hadn't even bothered to try, he cast out. So regardless of whether the the gifts God gives you are small or great, we can't gain anything by hiding them. We need to get them out and use them for the building up of God's people and for the glory of God. Now, John Calvin said in one place, let us remember that we ought to apply the use of the gifts of God, lest being unemployed and concealed, they gather rust. Let us also remember that we should diligently profit by them, lest they be extinguished by our slothfulness. I want to ask you, what has God given you and entrusted you with the care of? I want you to think both gifts and, uh, you know, possessions and, and, and relationships in life. What has God given you to use and care for? 
What, what talent are you concealing in the hope that you won't have to think about it? If you just ignore that way that God has gifted you, do you think that's actually helping God and his church? God gifts us in different ways. And our gifts aren't always something that we're kind of naturally inclined to. Don't think like um, your gifts are something that you just have this miraculous ability to be able to do. Gifts often come out of the way that we've been trained and educated. We've spent years and years and years honing our skills in these areas. It's like a pilot. You know, a pilot doesn't just turn up and have a natural gifting to be able to fly a plane. He has to spend time learning and training and spending time in the simulator, uh, learning all of the, the formulas, learning all of the, um, the skills and being examined by others who know how to do it. But by the end, he is fully equipped and skilled to be able to fly that plane. And then we might be able to say, look, he has a gift that through the ordinary means of training and education, God has gifted him to be able to fly a plane and he can use that for God. So I want to ask you, what gifts have you got that ought to be used for God? When we use our gifts, we are essentially, like the parable of the talents reminds us, we are investing in the kingdom of God. We're using what he has given us to multiply and be fruitful. And even now he gives us things that we can use to participate in kingdom growth as co-workers of Christ. But stewardship isn't just about using our gifts well, it's about using the other things God has given us well or overseeing the care of things that God has given us. If God has given us families, we ought to be careful to steward our families well. Or perhaps God has given us older family members that we need to care for and part of stewarding well might be looking after our dying relatives. Are you maintaining the things that God has given you or are you letting them fall into disrepair? Or have you piled up so many possessions for yourself that you can't actually be a good steward because you're so busy um, running around looking after all the other stuff that you've bought? So perhaps you need to get rid of stuff so that you can be a better steward. Number six, work is complement to rest. Work is complement to rest. When God created the world in six days, he did something that seems rather peculiar if you think about it. We've got the almighty God of the universe who spoke everything into existence and after six days, he has a rest. And he didn't rest because he was tired. He rested to set a pattern that mankind would see, that work is complemented by rest. Even when God sent Israel into the promised land, he was very clear. He expected them to rest regularly. And part of the reason he threw them out of the land was because they didn't rest. They didn't even let the land rest. They didn't exercise their stewardship over the land. And in their greed, they pushed on through the Sabbaths. To the Israelite, the land was theirs to abuse. And they saw downtime as an obstacle to profit. But God didn't give them Sabbaths to impede their profit, to impede their abilities, to work and make a living. He gave it to them because Sabbath was good for them and because it taught them that they were not in charge. God was in charge. And I'm sure you can see how relevant this is for us today. 
we get our work and rest cycles all messed up. We work too much or we work too little. With the ease of living in our corner of the world, it's not a real surprise that many of us rest too much. Yet even in our rest, we don't even rest well. We use our rest as an excuse for idle entertainment or hobbies or self-gratification. We, like the Israelites of old, need to get our rest sorted out. We need to realize that God is in charge. It's okay to let go of the reins for a bit. He will pick up the slack. It's not good for us to work hell for leather all the time or to work for months and months and months and then crash on a holiday for a few weeks. It's not healthy. We can overwork and we can burn ourselves out. But on the flip side, we shouldn't just use me time and rest as an excuse to avoid the difficulties of life. Life is hard, but we don't just get to check out when the going gets tough. We work hard, we work well, but we rest well. Now, I'm not a Sabbatarian. Uh, That means that I'm not somebody who will stand up here and say, thou shalt keep the Sabbath. But But I have a high regard for God's pattern that he has set for us. He has said, he has set a pattern where there was seven days work, sorry, six days work, and there was one day's rest. He set an example in creation, and he mandated it for Israel. And I think it's a good pattern to follow. Now, what I mean by six days work, one day rest, isn't that you charge hell for leather from six to nine, six days a week, but it does mean that we need a healthy balance of uptime and downtime, go time and quiet time. And we need to have God-oriented rest. So I encourage you to allocate time every week that is purely for the purpose of rest. And during that time, you might like to meditate on a verse like this from Matthew, where Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So I encourage you, work like God works, but rest like God rests. Number seven. Lastly, we're reflecting on work. We're reflecting on the work of Christ. And as we reflect on work, we think about the best worker, the best man to ever walk the planet, the one who did the best job out of all of us. He fulfilled his job requirements completely. His name was Jesus the Christ. His work was the most perfect picture of work. He came and did all the Father required of him. He came to do a job and he battled through the opposition of the world and through the opposition of Satan to complete it. And he was victorious where Adam was not. He fulfilled his job requirements where Adam did not. He was a better Israel than Israel was. And you know what Jesus did? He did all these things that we've been talking about. He worked through the good and the bad. He worked in the sacred and the secular. He worked to give reward and to receive his reward. He worked as a faithful steward who saved. And now he has completed his work. He sat down with a footstool at the Father's side. He is at rest. It is done. 
Christ's work was on the Father's command and on our behalf. He has saved the church. He has worked to redeem you and I from Satan's sin and death. And we are bought by the blood of Christ. We are won by his life, death, burial and resurrection. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. His work was to tear down the works of another. So let's work like God's works. Let's work like Christ, with Christ. And as we work to mimic Christ and his character and obedience, we need to not lose sight of the fact that we don't earn our salvation. As much as we work, we are not working so that we might gain our salvation. We become workers in Christ, and we never think that we have worked enough to earn our salvation as a reward. That's why we needed Christ. It's not like as if you if you punch in and punch out enough times for Jesus, you'll get an end-of-year bonus, which is salvation. No, our salvation is earned on our behalf because none of us, from the first man and woman to now, has been able to earn it. None of us have been able to earn our reward of salvation. Only Jesus could have ever been said to always meet expectations on his performance review. In fact, if you were trying to meet God's expectations, you wouldn't even last the probation period. You, like Adam, would get fired. And we need the salvation of Christ so that we can receive eternal life. So I encourage you as you work and toil and labor under God, remember that sweat and tears and years will not be enough to earn the gift of Christ to you. Work might seem futile, but I hope that that futility will make you run to Christ knowing that you will never be able to earn your way out of this. So let's just quickly recap what we were talking about. We saw the first, we saw that God is the worker. We saw that we reflect God's image in work. We saw that work is good and bad. We live in a messed up world. And so even though it's a good thing, it it's not always, it's not easy. The world is against us. Sin is against us. We saw that, that work is both sacred and secular. There's not this imaginary divide. We saw that work is a reward, but it is also rewarding. We saw that work is stewardship and saving. And we saw that work complements rest. And above all, we saw that Christ is the ultimate worker who we ought to mimic, but also is the worker who has earned a gift for us. So I want to close with the words from from Ecclesiastes. I haven't got them up on the board. But it says, I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we've been thinking through this topic of work and and toil and labor, we want to thank you for this gift. We know that work is good. We know that even in the year in the in the life to come, in the world to come, there will be work, but it will be a good work that is better than the work that we have here. Lord, we know that we are assailed um, by the difficulties of work, uh, that it's not always fruitful, 
and that even we as sinful human beings mess up our own work like Adam did. We ask, Lord, that you will forgive us for the ways in which we have failed to work for the good of others and for your glory. We ask that you would forgive us for the way that we have failed our employers, the way that we have failed each other, the way that we have failed to, to be good stewards of what you've given us. Please, Lord, empower us by your Holy Spirit to live out a life where our work is glorifying to you, where we use our skills and our gifts to glorify you and to, to, to serve each other. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to have a better attitude to work as we go to our work this week. Amen.